Welcome to Bible study. It's good to be with you again. This is Nick Rita, your host. And thank you for tuning in with us. It's wonderful to be able to open the Bible and allow the Word of God to speak as we look into some subjects. And um, today it's a very interesting one, the eyes of the Lord, the biblical worldview. I'd like to introduce uh, our panel for today. And um, I would like to say welcome to Brenton, right from Mount Gambia. Thank you, uh, Nick. It's lovely to be here again and uh, really looking forward to today's study. Will, good to have you with us also. Thank you. It'll be an exercise for my mind to, um, to um, try to grasp and to expound on this wonderful subject. And Joe. From down south of Adelaide, thank you for uh, joining our group too. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, Len, it's uh, a bit more central here in Adelaide, from Ingle Farm. It's good to have you with us, Len. Thank you, Nick, and welcome to the program, listeners. And Len, uh, it's um, our facilitator for today. Thank you for putting together this Bible study, Len, and uh, I will uh, hand it over to you. Okay, well, listeners, you know, we live in a world where there are many voices, many ideas seeking attention, and many of those ideas are just plain speculation, and some of them have millions of followers, and unfortunately, many of those ideas are in opposition with what the Bible teaches any set of ideas that anyone accepts as truth is called their world view. Truth, according to the majority of people, is relative. One world view is that life is meaningless and that there is no future. So, that being the case, why shouldn't we eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die? Some others believe that all life began through a chance meeting of inorganic compounds and evolved into more complex organisms without any external intelligent input. Today, we're going to study about life and existence from God's perspective, that is, from what the Bible, God's book, teaches. But before we start this study, we think it's a good idea to invite the Lord's presence. And Brenton, thank you for uh, offering to pray for us. Yes, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. We thank you that in this world we can have a sense of direction. We can have a sense of security and a sense of goal. And all of that comes about when we accept Jesus and understand his love for us and his desire to have a personal relationship with us. Lord, as we share this topic today with Len leading us, we pray that you'll guide. May your Holy Spirit open our minds to help us to realise that we are your children and that we have a responsibility to share that worldview that we have of God as our loving Heavenly Father with others so that others too may have the privilege of being coming 
part of your family. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Listeners, we recognize that the Bible teaches many, many things. And today we're going to deal with some of the more important things which form our worldview as Christians. So, Joe, would you like to read Psalm 53, verse 1, and tell us what it teaches? I'm reading from the Good News Bible, and it says, Fools say to themselves, there is no God. They are all corrupt, and they have done terrible things. There is no one who does what is right. This seems to pervade much of our society, Len. There are many philosophers and thinkers out there who say things like, you know, and I might just quote one, there is no God, but it doesn't matter. Man is enough. The Bible doesn't teach that, does it? From what we've read, it says only the fools say that there is no God. And in other parts of scripture says that they are willingly ignorant. So from the biblical point of view, it doesn't try and prove that God exists. It just says God exists and only fools say otherwise. Okay. So part of the biblical worldview is the fact that God exists. Well, I was interested in Dr. Billy Graham's statement on atheism. He says an atheist believes God doesn't exist. He can't prove it. He can't verify it. He can't demonstrate it. He lives only by faith, faith that he is right and everyone else is wrong. And then he goes on to say, often, however, people who claim to be atheists don't reject God because they've examined all the evidence and concluded there is no God. Instead, they reject God for one reason. They don't want anyone, including God, to interfere with their way of living. Okay, that's a very interesting Interesting statement, the fact that an atheist has to exercise faith to uh, hold his uh, set of beliefs. Anyhow, well, going on from that, Proverbs 15, that's 1-5, verse 3, says something about this God that we believe in. Would you like to read that and then comment? Proverbs 15 verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And then in Job 28:24 he says, For he, that's God, looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Len and panel and listener, this is to me a comfort. God knows about what's going on in this planet even though it seems to be in turmoil for us, he knows, he understands, and I can take comfort that he will guide everything according to the good in the end. Okay. I suppose we would have to conclude that God is far superior to man, having created man, and God can uh, do things that man can't do. That's why God can know all things. Going on from there, in John chapter 3, verse 16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, it mentions two special aspects 
of God, and Will has alluded to one of these already. Right, Len, uh, I, uh, I would like to read from um, uh, John 3.16 from New King James Version. And it says here, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. It's interesting here you asking about uh, to identify at least two things. Probably we can identify more than two. But the most important thing is that God so loved the world and each one of us. And then the second, which is on the same importance, is that he gave. We as humans, we are very used to ask and to get, get, get. But God is the one who gives, gives, and gives. And we know God as a long-suffering God. And this is, uh, at least for these two parts oh, from this passage, I learned that uh, how important it is to believe in God and have a correct worldview about uh, who God is in the Bible. Okay, so so far, the Bible reveals that God exists It reveals that God is above mankind and it reveals that God's nature is a loving nature and God isn't selfish, that he's done something for human beings to right that which is wrong. Mm. Let's have a look at some other aspects of God. Brenton, Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 21 mentions some of those things. Would you like to share that with us? Yes, I'll share it with you. Before I read the the verse, Len, let me say this. Um, Isaiah 45, the earlier part of it, deals with a prophecy made about someone called Cyrus, which was made by Isaiah through God's leading some 150 years before Cyrus even came on the scene. So when you get to verse 21, God is speaking through Isaiah and saying, tell them, bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told um, it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a just God and a saviour. There is none beside me. You get some other aspects of God mentioned here, Len, a just God and a saviour. Now, we would think in society that the two are possibly mutually exclusive, but in God, they're actually together. God can be just, but he can also be a saviour. He can also be merciful. And what Nick read, this text here in the Old Testament actually backs up. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here you have a complementary text from the Old Testament which complements uh, John 3.16. And I think the important thing for us today as we share with other people is that God's judgments are coming, that God wants us to be safe in him. He wants us to accept him and have eternal life. So you still have, even today in 2020, that balance uh, between God's justice and God's love and mercy and compassion. Now, there's a common view around, and I'd say it's part of people's worldview, except that God exists 
but they see him as a remote landlord, that he uh, created the world, yes, in a very basic form, and then he withdrew himself, and so he has no further interest in it. But I believe this text, as you've um, read and explained, points out that God is a very personal God. He's interested in each and every person, regardless of whether we are good, bad or indifferent. And this is an important thing, I think, about God. He's not an absentee landlord. He wants to be involved with mankind. Yes, Nick? Yeah, I was going just to add on that, Len, uh, even though this uh, kind of view, it's creeping in more and more, even in uh, Christendom. And, you know, uh, you may heard about the terminology theistic evolution. Yes. Where God uh, did his part uh, somewhere at the beginning, and that's it. He left it uh, alone. And we are here uh, just uh, progressing, evolving, whatever. But look at this uh, idea. A professor from the Oxford University, he theorized that we, the world, and everything around us, none of it is real. Instead, we are the digital creation of a race of aliens with super powerful computers. Now, while that's an interesting theory, it does bring up a crucial question. What is the nature of reality then? The reason I raise up this concern is because the world today, and particularly young ones, almost live in a virtual world, not knowing reality as we used to know, you know, and we, all of us here on the panel, probably we, we have few years on our back. But today, more and more people thinking of this unimaginary things, how the world can function and what's the future of this world. Taking out of the picture God, who's in control, whose eyes are upon everything what moves in this universe. And I think this is very crucial, very important to understand. If we take God out of the picture, then most of the Bible, whatever we read, can be classified only as a fairy tale. Len, may I comment that a distant God or a caretaker God, what did you call him? A landlord, a distant landlord. Absent landlord. Um, Absent landlord. This text we've just read in Isaiah 45, verse 21, um, suggests the opposite, actually. God says, tell and bring forth your case. That's an invitation. Yes, Yes, let them take counsel together. Made me think of Isaiah, um, Jeremiah 1, verse 18, which, uh, which says, come, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. That doesn't sound like an aloof God to me. That's right. Okay, well, scientists can explain the natural things they can observe, see, hear, uh, touch and taste, but they can't explain the supernatural. And God is supernatural, so you cannot prove or disprove God through science. Now, we were talking before about the love and goodness of God, and um, Joe was explaining about Jesus coming in the flesh as God, 
who came to save us human beings. He came as a human being. And, uh, Will, I'd like to ask you, what effect does this particular view have on you and me and other Christians compared to the worldview of the humanists or the atheists? Len, I would say that uh, here we have evidence that God has stepped into the affairs of humanity and that he's given the assurance uh, by promising a saviour that he will take charge of a restitution, a restoration, uh, giving hope through the promise of a saviour. Um, to me, it says that we're not left to chance, we're not left alone. There is indeed hope beyond this living here and now. And um, the very reason why we exist, I believe, is that God plans for us a glorious future and the future uh, for everyone that trusts and loves and loves him. This is vastly different to the worldview of a person who doesn't see a God controlling or uh, intercepting in uh, the affairs of men. Yes, I sometimes think about people who have no uh, relationship with God, how lonely they must feel. I remember reading an epitaph once which said, here lies an atheist all dressed up and nowhere to go. (laughs) And I think that kind of summarises people who don't have a belief in God or don't believe in salvation through Jesus. They live, they die, and that's it. Well, now, returning to something a little bit different, there was a philosopher named Gottfried Leibniz, and he said he wondered, why is there something instead of nothing? Brenton, how would you answer this question? Well, Genesis 1, 1, John 1, 1 to 3, and Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, actually have a similar sort of theme. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and this is a statement. This is not a dispute point. It's a statement that God created the heaven and the earth. Now, going beyond those, Len, um, there was a time where God spoke to a guy called Job. And in Job 38, and I'm going to just touch on this because it's relevant to the question you asked. God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? We find actually an answer to to this in the New Testament which just came to me, which I thought was quite interesting. Most Christians know, those who have read the Bible, of the story of the storm on the lake where Jesus and his disciples were in a boat and they were about to be drowned because the boat was about to sink. Christ arose and simply said to the storm, Peace, be still. Now, the only way you could do that is if you were in control of the elements. It is not possible then for you or I or for anyone else on this panel to still a storm. But if you created the elements that the storm arose out of, it is quite possible for you to do that. 
So when it goes back to saying in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, here you actually have proof from both the Old Testament and the New Testament that when God spoke, it was done. When he commanded, it stood fast. When you serve a God like that, it gives you a lot of confidence and it also gives you a worldview that this planet is not spinning out of control, that there is a God that is actually in control of it all. He will bring it to an orderly and fitting end and make it anew again. So basically what the Bible teaches that the world and what's in it didn't come into existence on its own. That's correct. Yes, that's right. What difference does that make to you, Nick? All right, I'm going to read the passage from Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. Again from um, New King James Version. And it says this, Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as a judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. Now, you see, this passage starts with fear God. And we clarified um, in our last study that to fear doesn't mean to, you know, to be, what words did we use? Like scared or to to fear God because you, he will punish you or because, you know, to fear, we established that the fear of God is more like a reverence approach. It's more like to come before your almighty God, the creator, in a, in a way of respect and reverence and all other things. That's how it's to fear God. Now, the passage says that to give that reverence to the creator, to God, because he is going to judge all things. And interesting, uh, there is another passage, Len, if I could um, um, read in uh, Exodus chapter 20. And uh, I will start from uh, verse Eight. Actually, this is very interesting because it talks about one, about one of the most forgotten commandments in the Bible. Because the word starts with these words, Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And further on, it's saying here, uh, Len, You have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath the day of rest, dedicated to the Lord, your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes your own son, your daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. Now, also here in verse 11, it says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day, he rested. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Do you see the language here in both passages, in Revelation and in Exodus, that God is the creator, God is the sustainer of all things, and everything what we do, everything what we do, we do because uh, of recognizing who God is. 
Well, some people, of course, they worship all kinds of things. Um, in India, cows and cattle are considered sacred, and some people worship idols. I've seen some enormous uh, idols in some countries overseas. Uh, why should human beings not worship, say, animals or images or things like cabbages, Nick? Uh, Alain, um, a very good question, because uh, when you talk about worshipping, you have to un understand what that means to worship. Now, we don't worship God because he's, um, um, how to say, so just something bigger than us or more overwhelming. If, it, if, that's the, if that's the motive of our worship, it can be a wrong attitude. We are worshiping God because we established at the beginning, because he is love, because he created us, because he sustained all things. That's the reason of worship. Now, some other people may worship their dog or their cow because it's a nice pet, you know, or any other things. But the difference in between worshiping God and worshiping anything else is that God, in relation with us humans, did something which we cannot even comprehend fully right now. We may need eternity to contemplate and learn about the love of God. Okay, Brenton. Just quickly, though, Len, this subject was touched upon by Paul in the New Testament in the book of Acts, chapter 17. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. Paul was talking to the philosophers of his day who were known as Epicureans and Stoics. And these were the intelligentsia of the day. And this is what he said in his address to them, talking about God. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with the hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath and all things. Now further down he says this, for in him... That's God. We live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Really what Paul is saying here, and it's a very interesting psychological approach, Len, He's really saying, you guys, you claim to be the intelligentsia of your day. You actually undervalue yourselves. Um, it is estimated, Len, that there were some 3,000 idols in Athens in the time of Paul. Just think of it, 3,000. And they are worshipping these things created by their own hands. He's really saying, you guys underestimate yourselves seriously. We are God's offspring. He created us. He made us. Therefore, our worship should be upward, not downward. And I think that answers the question very well. Yes, Joe. I think there's something in man that appears to need to worship something. Yes. And some would say that God has placed that in man. Now, if we as people, if, you know, as human men or humankind don't know who to worship, who is worthy of worship, we find that Man will worship, like you said, but maybe not cabbages and whatever, and their pets, 
but they worship celebrities. They worship football stars. They worship movie stars. Um, you know, even influencers. We hear a lot about influencers these days, and yeah. they have a huge following, and they have a lot of control over those people who follow them. And so these people are duped into thinking, you know, they're fulfilling that need of worship by supplanting the true person who they should be worshipping, and that is God, the creator. So I just wanted to make that comment that, you know, if you don't worship what is true and what is good and what is right and perfect, then you'll find that you're worshipping things that aren't worthy of your worship and you are creating or recreating yourself in their image rather than in God. Yes, Yes, before Will speaks, um, and then you can have something to say, Nick, I really believe that when you realise that you are created in the image of God, it gives you a nobility that people don't uh, accept themselves who don't worship God. Yes. And I believe this has got something to do with people's own self-respect. Uh, I think particularly of teenagers who learn at school that they are the product of mere chance and uh, their predecessors were monkeys. It doesn't give um, you don't have a very noble family history. And uh, I think this is a bit of a problem with society. Well, you wanted to say something. Then you ask the question, uh, why don't we worship animals or an image or something that has been created? Um, I've been fascinated with this um, for quite a while, and I discovered that the classical author Diodorus, Greek author, explained the origin of animal worship by recalling the myth in which the gods, supposedly threatened by giants, hid in the guise of animals. The people then naturally began to worship the animals that their gods had disguised themselves with. And that continued as an act of worship, even after the gods returned to their normal state. Looking even further back, you know that uh, the Egyptian pantheon uh, was uh, especially fond of zoomorphism. That's um, the animal, the, the gods taking on uh, on animals, cats, you recall uh, the Egyptian god Bastet, ibises and baboons were Thoth, crocodiles, Sobek and Ra, and so on and so forth. Um, They were worshipping everything, even to the scarab beetle. And uh, when you turn your attention away from the living God, you, you get into this sort of worship. I recall that that animals were even found mummified in the Egyptian uh, pyramids as a result of these beliefs. Mm, They were. Nick, you had a comment. Yes, I will. uh, I mean, it's interesting what uh, Will was bringing up uh, while I was thinking um, to to say something, because I was going to refer to what Joe was saying earlier, how people are worshipping these days, you know, I mean, all sorts of things, like, I mean, particularly stars and... uh, um, famous people and uh, so on and so forth. I wonder, now this is not my strength here, you may help me here, I wonder how you will explain a little bit even more the word worship in English. Because when I look in my language, 
And I am curious to see in, in original, you know, let's say in Greek or in um, uh, Hebrew, how is this word interpreted? Because to me, in English, it can easily apply to worship somebody who you like. If you like a famous person, if you like a, a football club, if you like this and that, then you you may find yourself worshiping that. Is not the meaning in my language. Worship in my language is not about what you like. It's more than that. It's a bit more like what Will said. When people believe that uh, gods had to uh, to find refuge themselves in animals, and then people, rather than to worship uh, that god, they start to worship the animal because it was identified almost the same thing. The animal was identified with god. And that's the difference in between worshiping if you like something or worshiping if you really understand who God is. As we mentioned a bit earlier, fear God. And we talked about that God is the almighty creator, sustainer of all things. Probably we're missing out because of the English, uh, you know, uh, interpretation of the word worship. Yes, that's understandable. Well, I believe you have a comment you'd like to share. I think, Len, that... Everything we believe as Christians, everything, rests on the doctrine of a 68-day creation and rests on the fact that we are created beings by an almighty God. All right, thank you. And Brenton, you've got yeah. something you'd like to share. Sure. For Seventh-day Adventists, Len, the Bible remains the foundational text of our faith. It teaches the worldview the filter by which we are able to see and understand the world, which can be a very daunting and complicated place. Scripture creates the template to help us better understand the reality we find ourselves in, which we are part of which we are part. So our worldview is shaped, as uh, uh, Will said, by the simple fact that God created us. Along with that creation comes redemption, but also, Len, along with that createdness or the fact that we were created in God's image comes that word accountability. Now, you and I know that our world is not strong on accountability these days. So um, it's interesting that when you do believe a worldview that God created you, the issue of accountability immediately comes into the picture. Joe, many people ask the question, well, how come we've got sickness, evil and death that's so widespread in the world? What does the Bible have to say about that? Well, then it appears that when bad things happen, you know, there's sickness, there's evil, there's death, tragedy. Unfortunately, God often, very often, gets the blame. How could God let this happen? Why did God, you know, you know, where's God in all this? And fortunately, as Brenton mentioned, we have a filter. We have the word of God, which reveals to us, unveils the source of the, these issues that we have in the world today, that God is unjustly being blamed for this. And if I might refer to Revelation 12, there's a passage 
7 to 9, including verses 12, it's probably pertinent that we read it because it gives us a look behind the scenes um, at actually who causes all the grief, the sickness and evil and death in the, on the planet. And if I'll start in verse 7, and this is the Good News translation, simply because it's in just such layman terms. And it says, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, who fought back with his angels. But the dragon was defeated, and he and his angels were not allowed to stay in heaven any longer. So we have a war scene. We have good angels fighting bad angels, if you like. And a huge dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent named the devil or Satan that deceived the whole world. Note the word deceived. He was thrown down to earth and all his angels with him. And then there's a really positive verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now God's salvation has come. Now God has shown his power as king. Now his Messiah has shown his authority. For the one who stood before our God and accused our brothers day and night has been thrown out of heaven. Our brothers won the victory over him by the blood of the lamb and by the truth which they proclaimed and they were willing to give up their lives and die. And it goes on a little bit further. For the devil has come down to you and he's filled with rage. Who's filled with rage? Because he knows that he has only a little time left. And so we have the instigator of all the unhappiness, all the tears, all the grief, all the pain that we have on this planet and we endure is really the, is God is not the author and the source of these, but the Satan himself. And he is unmasked in these passages in Revelation. There are other scriptures throughout the Bible, but um, this is quite relevant in this context is that um, it points him out and says, hey, this is the one that's responsible. Don't blame God. Yes, Brenton, because of Satan's interference with God's creation, what are some of the realities that we have to face? The reality, Len, is that there is something called the Great Controversy, which is the battle going on between good and evil. That battle actually affects every single human being that lives on this planet. And what Joe read was, was very, very good. We need to accept a couple of realities. The first reality is that the devil that we face is not some sort of mythical creature with hoofs and horns and carrying a pitchfork. Uh, the devil that we face is, in fact, an entity, an angelic entity, but a fallen one. And he is much more powerful than us. So when Paul talks about this, he says this, and I'm going to read this because this is important. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle, Len, against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, the reality of this is, is that it comes down to this. 
that last text is a particularly interesting one because when you look at the Greek construction and the way it's written, Paul is describing those of us who follow the Lord as an army. He's using army terminology, military terminology. But he's also saying, the, the last verse that I read says, said that having done all to stand. We all know the term last man standing. I think most of us are familiar with that particular term. Paul is saying here, unless you have on the whole armour of God, you won't be amongst those who are the last man standing. But in Christ, if we have on the whole armour of God, we will be standing and we will still be standing when the devil is defeated. And I think that's, that's an absolutely wonderful thing that our Saviour has promised us that the victory is already won providing we put on the whole armour of God so that we can stand not only in the evil day, but at the end of it all, we will still be standing. Not only standing, but we will be seeing Jesus face to face. I think that's wonderful. Yes, so I think we have to come to the reality of the fact that there is a war going on Yes, in this world and within us as human beings. And that um, battle is between good and evil. Now, Will, there is another thing that the Bible teaches which is not part of most people's worldview. Would you like to share with us about that? Yes, Len, for years, for years and years before, as I was a new Christian, I was uh, confused by, the, uh, by, what, by 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 were actually teaching uh, to compare it to uh, my present um, family's understanding of the state of the dead and uh, a resurrection, <clears throat> it presents significant problems uh, to a worldview that uh, people proceed to heaven a moment after death. Instead, um, the Bible teaches that God has planned the day of resurrection. And until then, we rest in the grave to await that release from death. Uh, a tremendous, well, a difference to what the world really believes, the worldview of most people. I could perhaps just quote one text, Ecclesiastes 9 verse 5, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten, of course, until uh, the resurrection day. Well, that's um, very interesting, Will, because the majority of people in the world, with their worldview, uh, believe that when someone dies, they either turn into a different life form or they go somewhere, either to heaven or hell. But the Bible doesn't actually teach that. The Bible teaches that at death we go to the grave we have no thoughts until Jesus comes again. Well, we're moving on to something a little bit different. And Joe, from the book of John, the Gospel of John, from verses 10 to 14, and you can summarize this if you like, it talks about God as a creator, but also in a different form. I'm reading again, Len, from the Good News Translation and the text that you've chosen, starting in verse 10, the, world, the word, that is with a capital W, the word was in the world 
And though God made the world through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own country, but his own people did not receive him. Some, however, did receive him and believed in him. So he gave them the right to become God's children. They did not become God's children by natural means, that is, by being born as the children of a human father. God himself was their father. And I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. The word became a human being and full of grace and truth lived among us. We saw his glory, the glory which he received as the father's only son. I'd like to reread verse 12. Some, however, did receive him and believed in him, so he gave them the right to become God's children. I feel that even though God, the word referring to Christ, he was there at the creation of the world, he came to this planet and his own people didn't receive him. But we, we have... We have received him. You know, he gave us the power and um, we received him and we believed in him. And so he gave us the right to become his children. Um, This is what we call redemption, isn't it? This is something that every Christian, this is the hope that we have. You know, we know our beginning. The beginning was right. In the beginning, God created. And that was the beginning of mankind. But we need to know the latter part of the journey Where are we going? Is this all there is? And here we have that God has provided the answer that we belong with him, an eternity with him. We are his children. And so this is the end of the journey. We're not left wondering, you know, what comes after this? You know, uh, Will read read to us about what comes after death. Well, here we have that... um, we have the right to become God's children, and we are His God's, and we are God's children. Yes. And this is a wonderful thing. I often think to myself that people have no knowledge of the salvation that we have through what God did, and how very lonely they must feel. Yeah, what I was going to say, Len, just before you move on, is uh, Joe read uh, this passage in uh, John and verse. 14, it says, so the word became human. Now, yeah. I'd like to refer back a little bit to what we discussed earlier. You know that uh, German thinker and uh, writer, he said something, uh, he asked that big question. Why is there something instead of nothing? Is because people cannot help themselves but just realize that what we are talking about, a biblical worldview, it's something which stands way with more weight before any other science and um, um, whatever interpretation you may uh, want to apply. If you, if you compare all these things, there are thinkers in this world, there are people, even atheists, who will recognize there is something there. There is something there. And that's what we need to really focus on this because God presents himself in the word of God, who he is. Almighty God, powerful God, but also redeemer. And the one who became like one of us to be able to fulfill the plan of salvation. And that's amazing. 
All right, well, part of the worldview expressed in the Bible is about moral behaviour. And uh, if we ask our questions, what is, ask the question, what is the basis for moral behaviour and responsible living? The basis is God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. And, Brenton, why did God give a moral law? I believe he gave the moral law, um, firstly, for our satisfied and happy living, Len. I believe in obeying God's law, we um, are actually happy, we are secure in, in that relationship. The reason he gave the law on Sinai is because Israel had largely forgotten it and he needed to remind them of his law by doing it in a physical way, a, a um, what do they call it, a, um, a visual way, uh, by writing the Ten Commandments. Now, the basis of the whole of society is based on the Ten Commandments. So if we were to obey those as God intended us to do, we would not only be happy, healthy, but we would also be a, a very blessed people and our lives would reflect God to others. All right, Nick, in the New Testament, the Ten Commandments are summarised. What is the summary given? In Mark 12, verses 30 and 31. And I read again from uh, New King James. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second, equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than this. The Ten Commandments, if you care to read them carefully, talk about one's um, responsibilities toward God and also talk about our responsibilities towards other people. And uh, as was said earlier, they are the basis for um, all law, law of the land, that we live under. Now, we've been talking about quite a few things, but there are probably two things that should be highlighted in the worldview of a Christian. And we read those in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12. Joe, would you like to read that and perhaps summarize? Thank you, Lynn. I'm reading from the New International Version and Chapter 14 of Revelation, verse 12, says, This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. It kind of it summons that, you know, we, we talked about being in a war, you know, where fight, you know evil is fighting the good and vice versa. And so here it says we're going to be needing endurance. We're going to be needing patience. Um, and um, because we are at war and this is taking a lot of effort um, and it says that this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. So it appears that there are two. There are two prerequisites, if you like. Even though we're going to be required to be patiently enduring um, in this conflict, 
Um, we need to be obedient to God and we need to remain faithful to Jesus. Without these two, how are we different to any anyone else out there? Yes, that's a very good question, a good comment. And just on that one, Len, uh, quickly, because uh, this uh, passage in Revelation 14, 12 is just after that amazing um, passage of uh, from starting from verse 6 about the three angel message when God is explaining the situation and it's expecting us to do something. And now it's, enforce, it's reinforcing, if you like, how important it is to hold on of the teachings of God, the commandments of God, and then have the testimony of Jesus, what that means, because Jesus was blamed by breaking God's law. You know, and Jesus was not doing that. Jesus actually was fulfilling God's law in every minute of his life. Yes, Joe? I guess what I probably should add is that God's people are not obeying God's commandments and remaining faithful to Jesus in their own strength because in their own strength there's no power. So they are relying on God to be obedient, to remain faithful because if it weren't for God's enabling power, we would all be, well, falling short, wouldn't we? All right. Well, thank you for that. Now, listeners, we believe the biblical worldview is the right one to have. It explains where we come from, why we're here and where we're going. It explains why there's evil and gives an understanding of the existence and nature of God and his dealings with mankind. It outlines how to live and it provides certainty and assurance and we recommend it to you. And before we close, I would just like to pray for you. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity of sharing the biblical worldview with our listeners today. We pray that our listeners will take notice of this and allow themselves to be influenced by the Holy Spirit so that they are your people too. We invite your blessings on each one of them and with the panel today, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you very much, everyone, for your uh, contribution to this uh, Bible study. Keep in mind, uh, we are talking about education and how the Bible is um, uh, presenting itself before us in various ways. We look today at the biblical worldview and how the eyes of the Lord it's upon everything what goes on in this world. Please join us again next time when we are going to look uh, into the subject Jesus as the master teacher. Until then, may God richly bless you. Don't forget, keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus. I will leave you with uh, this beautiful song, His Strength is Perfect. I can do all things Through Christ who gives me strength But sometimes I wonder what He can do through me No great success to show 
No glory on my own, but in my weakness He is there to let me know that His strength is perfect when our strength is gone. He'll carry us when we can. Carry on, raised in His power, the weak become strong. His strength is perfect. His strength is perfect. And we can only know. The power that He holds When we truly see how deep our weakness goes His strength in us begins Where ours comes to an end And He hears our humble cry and he proves again that his strength is perfect when our strength is gone. He'll carry us when we can carry on, raised in his power. His strength is perfect His strength is perfect His strength is perfect His strength is perfect